This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the February Room. In this episode, host Justin Carnop reflects on a family's first drift boat and the mid-river crisis that nearly sunk her. The exchange of an envelope containing 20 crisp $100 bills the most cash I'd ever laid eyes on, cemented the transaction. Dad and I connected the trailer and checked all the lights. The first and last time the trailer's electrical grid functioned as advertised. With that, we began the return trip over the Cascades, dragging a drift boat with a continuous rocker design, a technological breakthrough in whitewater maneuverability conceptualized, tweaked, and perfected along the very river that paralleled the highway. In these parts, the term Mackenzie-style drift boat says all that a river runner need know regarding form and function. My dad beamed, the possibilities flittering around his head like caddisflies at dusk on a juniper crown. Recognizing the opportunity for a fatherly teaching moment, he extolled the virtues of hard work and thriftiness. Be afraid of mountain lions and heights, but never be afraid of hard work, son. A couple of grand represented a significant heap of disposable income for a guy supporting a family of five, but this investment would open the door to a whole new world of possibilities. Dad and his cronies had collectively agreed to elevate their status within the riparian zones. They were graduating from inflatable U-disco rafts to drift boats the river rat equivalent of urbanite swapping station wagon for sporty sedan. Though slightly used, the boat arrived at our Central Oregon driveway in what I, an ardent collector of baseball cards, would have deemed mint condition. The vessel was clean, no paint or graphics, just a pure shimmering hull with only the inconspicuous Willie Boat logo to bear. At 16 feet by 54 inches, she was one of the first wide-bottom willies off the assembly line. She looked fishy as hell, as is. But my dad had plans to get his rattle can on and created a stencil 
of a Chinook salmon in the style of Northwest Coast art. When he was finished, his shrouded creative side popped from the aluminum canvas. The two of us would christen the boat, though there would be no champagne involved. My dad had already discovered that Miller Lite, rather than High Life, the champagne of beers, could serve as the ice base for multi-day trips. Something about the thickness of aluminum lent the light cans, specifically, to withstand the freezing process without detonation. Whether concluded via trial and error or the result of random luck, I cannot say. But this aha moment was one of the great discoveries of Dad's recreational career. The bitch had cracked the code. And shortly after we launched at Trout Creek on the Lower Deschutes, he reached into the cooler, cracked a cold one, and drank to his elevated status of a riverman the likes of Mark Angel or Zane Gray. He was now a dory runner, and the rivers of the PNW were wide open. A drift boat reacts to an oar stroke rather instantaneously, whereas an inflatable, particularly the behemoth indestructible rafts that we ran in the 1980s, required a few feathers of the blade to achieve momentum. This navigational disparity requires correction on part of the captain. Those rowers accustomed to rubber often overcorrect when at the helm of a drift boat, resulting in missed lines and failure to avoid obstacles. Said obstacles exact a heavier toll against aluminum or fiberglass than hypolon or PVC. Mistakes in whitewater are magnified. Sure, rafts can flip, but more often than not, a raft will encounter a mid-river boulder, log, or debris and bounce off no worse for the wear. T-bone a rock in a drift boat, however, and you may well sink. My father was well aware of the elevated stakes as he got a feel for the boat dodging boulder fields through the relatively tame stretch of Class II whitewater on day one. Later that afternoon, as the June sun sank sheepishly behind the Mutton Mountains, we pulled into our preferred camp at Whiskey Dicks. Salmon flies took to wing in apocalyptic numbers, and the camp water downriver beckoned. I set off to flip sofa pillows under overhanging alder branches. At my last fishing hole, I could hear the din of water rushing downgrade at high velocity and smashing against toothy basalt. Just around the bend, Whitehorse Rapid loomed. Somewhere back at camp, I'm certain that my dad felt a tinge of trepidation for what lay in store. Whiskey Dicks was a strategic camp, roughly a third of the way down a three-day float, but like sleeping outside the enemy's gates, Restless nights were the norm. Sourdough pancakes were dad's specialty. The starter was from the Carter administration and stored within a locking mason jar. The primordial soup within was comprised of various river waters from Oregon to Arizona. Aunt Jemima herself bathed in a steaming pot of Deschutes water while dad flipped his famous flapjacks on cast iron atop a Coleman stove. Whipped challenge butter, the one with the stag on the lid, waited on deck. Prior to my emergence from the sleeping bag, the bacon had been pre-cooked. As usual, the chef had helped himself to the better part of it. The rendering liquid rested, reserved for his signature river dish concocted by Doc McCloskey, Dad's co-captain on many of our family river adventures. Soakies consisted of one piece of Wonder Bread, 
thoroughly saturated in bacon grease. It was just what the doc ordered to get the bowels moving before a day on the oars. I passed on Silky's, as doc wasn't there, and stuck with pancakes. We broke camp and loaded the stern of the willy boat. Fly rods rode upright and a Berkeley rod holder mounted between the drink holders in the bow. I strapped an orange life vest snug to my skinny torso and took my position as passenger in the seat above the storage box. We pushed off for Dad's first great test of drift boatmanship. I'd been through Whitehorse with my dad countless times, with nary an issue. As the de facto tour guide on Warm Springs Reservation events, he would often navigate the rapid multiple times in a day. Suffice to say, he knew the line, yet stopped to scout to ensure there weren't any surprises. We dodged Poison Oak and hiked up the well-worn scouting trail alongside the railroad tracks. The first few hundred feet of Whitehorse were responsible for the majority of carnage. Every move along the initial course was performed with the intention of dodging the aptly named Oh Shit Rock. This one boulder, often concealed by whitewash, would seemingly manifest if the captain were even slightly off course. While Oh Shit flipped its share of misguided inflatables, most rafts spun off with captain and crew rattled, but no worse for the wear. Drift boats, however, were another matter. High side Oh Shit and your boat had now become the property of the river gods. Over the years, there were occasions when the upper end of Whitehorse resembled a backyard in a trailer park. The lag time between the scouting point and the tail out entering Whitehorse seems to take an eternity. Anticipation and trepidation reach crescendo before the bow of the boat dives off into the teeth of the rapid. We dropped in and Dad spun the boat to split the initial boulders and get eyes on Oh Shit Rock. He pulled on the oars and huffed and puffed and I was alarmed by his unusual panic. Then he said it. Oh shit! The percussion of aluminum smashing against rock was sharp, harsh, and deafening to my 12-year-old ears. The port side took the blow, shifting the stern. We were now in peril as the current worked to lodge the boat up against the toothy mound of basalt. Boy, I knew we were in trouble. From there, Water would begin to rush over the starboard gunwale and pin the boat to the rock. But Dad made a miraculous move. With all of the might that he could apply to the Sawyer smoker oars, he pulled with the left, pushed with the right simultaneously. Somehow, he held onto the left door despite the immense amount of water that must have been pressing against the blade. The boat spun off and cleared oh shit. Like a pilot who had just landed a plane without an engine, he regained control and we sailed to safety. A quiet mile later, we exited Whitehorse and eased into Davidson Campground to assess the damage. The port side bore multiple scratches, like Wolverine tried to claw his way through the aluminum. The chine was nearly punctured through, an indentation forced deep into the reinforced gauge along the waterline. The boat would bear these scars for the rest of her days. A constant reminder of how lucky we were on the maiden voyage and the inherent risks of running whitewater in a rather unforgiving boat. However, this wouldn't be the only time that the Willie nearly ended up as river fodder. The birthplace of the modern river dory, 
the aforementioned Mackenzie River, races through the Willamette National Forest like a spooked blacktail. River guidebook in hand, I led a team of two unsuspecting passengers on a foray through the gnarliest part of the river's maw. As we approached Martin's Rapids, we slid over to put eyes on the most technical piece of whitewater I had yet attempted in Dad's drift boat. Despite the detailed route described in the frayed pages of Dad's well-worn guidebook, my mind's eyes struggled to connect the dots. The exit strategy at the bottom of the rapids was shrouded in a maze of boulders and whitewater. For the better part of an hour, we stood on the volcanic promontory overlooking Martin's Rapids. Perplexed, doubtful, indecisive, and lacking confidence, it was time to shit or get off the pot. I rock-picked my way through the boulder garden and set our course for the crux of the matter. I split two boulders, and rather than push forward to achieve momentum and catch the current line that might carry us to safety, I kind of panicked, back rode, and bought myself some time to consider the next move. But like a tractor beam on a Star Destroyer, we were snatched by the hydraulic grasp of the powerful back eddy. I attempted to reenact the move that my dad had made on oh shit by spinning the boat to regain the main current. But as soon as I dipped the oar blade, the torrent ripped it right from my grasp. Up shit creek without a paddle. There was no time to grab the spare oar. Defenseless, the stern began to fill with water rushing over the top of the mid-river boulder behind us. We would sink within seconds and be lucky if one, if not all three of us, didn't drown. Divine intervention is the only conceivable explanation for what happened next. My oar simply popped up from the back eddy like a bobbing miracle and stayed there for long enough for me to reach over, grab it, lift the oar up, and drop it back into the oar lock. Then I just spun the boat as hard as I could. Somehow, it kicked out, caught the main current, I corrected our line, and we limped to the safety of the shoreline. The Willy boat would remain in our family for the next two decades and served as our vessel on countless watery escapades. The boat went into commercial operation in the late 1990s, carrying sports on fly fishing adventures throughout Central Oregon. The Chinook salmon emblem faded from the bow, replaced by the logo of my fledgling outfitting business, symbolizing a transfer of ownership. The interior received a facelift of rhino lining, and I replaced the trailer at least twice in the years I trailered that boat over roughshod river roads throughout the West. Upon moving to Montana, the boat sat idle, resting in my parents' backyard, till my guide friend borrowed it to, air quotes, finish off the season. We didn't see the boat for two years, but eventually... I recovered her and drug her to my newly adopted home state. But rafts and low-profile drift boats are better suited to the fishing style and nature of the streams here. Without sufficient room to store a third unnecessary boat, I accepted a reasonable offer from an old Idaho steelheader. A good drift boat, like a Brittany, deserves an owner that will treat her properly and exercise her in the country she was born to run. 
They say the two best days of a boat owner's life are the day they buy the boat and the day they sell it. But I beg to differ. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. If you've been enjoying this episode or past episodes, the biggest way you can support us is by leaving us a review, liking, or subscribing to Spotify, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Thank you again for tuning in, and we'll see you here next week.